Hey folks, so today Jack Scaff walks us through his work as a financial planner with families and individuals who are either looking towards retirement, have lost a loved one, or are just beginning their financial journey. In addition, we also look at the state of inflation in the United States, the financial havoc wrought by COVID, as well as how San Francisco has struggled to make an economic comeback. My name is Benjamin Russick, licensed marriage and family therapist, and this is my podcast, Look, Just Tell Me What to Do. What do you think people need to know about money that they don't know? Like, what's the most common misconception or, or, or lack of understanding? It doesn't define who you are. I think it's most important that money should be working for you and you shouldn't be working for money a lot of times. Talk, talk about that. I believe that a lot of people let money define whether or not they believe they're successful, how they're viewed, whether or not they'll have enough. But, you know, not to be philosophical because I'm not a terribly philosophical person, but I do rely on certain quotes here and there. And one of them, I believe absolutely is uh, Lao Tzu said, he who knows he has enough will always have enough. Because, you know, people say it all the time and talk is cheap, but work to live, not live to work. And so I think it's very healthy to figure out where you are in life and not try to judge yourself by maybe whatever else is going on in the world, because it's very easy to do that in a materialistic society. I imagine retirement, I've encountered dozens of patients over the years who have a hell of a time with retirement because they're like, if I don't work, who am I? Absolutely. I think A, work a lot of times defines who someone is. Uh, we work with them, very successful people from various lines of work, and they've dedicated their entire lives at being successful at it. And walking away creates this gigantic void of identity. From a financial perspective, I think the biggest challenge is always getting comfortable with, do I have enough? And that's where I think it's important to talk about different scenarios. If the market does this, this is what you can afford to spend. Trying to bring a certain level of certainty into, I'm the first to admit our world is a very, or my world, my sandbox, excuse me, is an imperfect science. There will be variability for someone that's got 10 years, much less 40 years left of life expectancy. How can you try to make as good a decision given that length of uncertainty that doesn't bankrupt someone? What kind of choices do people make when they retire? Do they stop working? and what do they do with themselves and how do they make that switch? My experience has been it's a lot of times a leap of faith, um, not knowing what they're going to do. Fortunately for the clients we work with, they are able to either spend time doing something else that's maybe not as financially lucrative, get involved with volunteer work or nonprofit stuff. Obviously, one of the um, things that people ultimately want to do is to be able to travel. So we see a lot of clients doing that, you know, becoming, a, you know, just taking foot off the gas. Spending time with family, with grandkids. And how do they feel once they make that leap? It really just depends on the individual. Some people are very happy they did it, don't look back. Mm -hmm. Some people maybe have a transition period where they feel as though they're not being terribly productive for a period of time and then finally get into their groove. And I think some people still have a difficult time filling that void, even if they've been out of the workforce for 10 or 15 years. I think people need to have a sense of meaning and purpose and direction. Absolutely. Because it really calls into question, what does it mean to have direction? Absolutely. Where, I mean, where are we going anyway? How do we define ourselves? Right. Can you imagine retiring? I can imagine it. But again, I don't know what I would do. I absolutely love the role I have in some clients' lives. I've worked in some situations with now fourth generations, and it's very rewarding. You know, one of the things that we've spoken about previously is I've been with the same company through two mergers for 25 plus years now. When you start working with someone when they're 50 or 60, fast forward 20 years, now they're 70 or 80, their circumstance changes. And while it's been one of the most difficult parts of my job, I 
am very proud of the fact that I'm able to help clients during some of those emotional periods when they've lost a loved one. So uh, when my father passed about, was it 11, 12 years ago, something mm-hmm. like that, you kind of swooped in and helped everything, which I thank you for that. Um, <laughs> and so Jack manages my mother's money. And I'm like, if this man, like my mom is the most inscrutable human being that's ever lived. <laughs> She's eagle-eyed and doesn't trust people a lot oh. and she trusts you so if <laughs> well, my mom <laughs> trusts you then you are trustworthy oh, well. so that's why i put my money with with your people but was that a typical situation for you they're not ever typical i've dealt with some very small estates and some very large estates anywhere from a couple hundred thousand to up to 20 million plus and the emotional aspects there's no typical emotional aspect obviously the larger estates might have more administrative challenges especially when it's a spouse and obviously children as well but when you lose a spouse you have not only a lot of that uncertainty when it comes to financial well-being but also that void of a life partner and so what i try to do is let the surviving family members grieve remember their loved ones a lot of times for obvious reasons clients of ours don't necessarily understand the process or the language their other professionals might be speaking so we take it upon ourselves me and my team that all try to offload as much of that administration from the client oh to, i see yeah. yeah i get it so that yeah they don't have to do all that all yeah that the process word. yeah What's satisfying about your work? What's most satisfying about my work is the relationships I've developed with so many clients. Again, I mentioned earlier that I just opened an account for the fourth generation of a family. I was recently asked by a very large client if I would be his trustee, uh, which I cannot do for uh, compliance reasons. Mm -hmm. But just having that question asked is an honor. You know, the stupid little things, like I work with a client who lost her husband a while ago, and she told me, I have your name and your phone number on a sticky on my fridge. It doesn't say what you do, but Mm -hmm. it says, if and when something happens to me, call Jack. And so those little things. Just being, uh, you know, part of people's lives and help them navigate something that they might not otherwise feel comfortable doing. There are, unfortunately, people in this world that will take advantage of someone. And uh, it's nice to have, again, it's a cheap word, but to have that trust of so many different people. It is interesting that I I don't really know you, but you're actually an important part of my emotional landscape. Thank you. You are. (laughs) I look at my account all the time and I... <laughs> this just sounds a little weird, but every time I look at my account, I think of you, Jack. <laughs> and, I, and I think of like, I don't know how nice everybody is when I call and I have a question and how quickly everybody gets back to me. And it's just, it, it's such peace of mind. It's, it, that's it, gotta be psychically good for you. Yes, it really is. It, without being too specific, are you able to tell me like, what, what's a particular emotionally wrenching situation that would occur to you? I've worked with a couple of clients who've lost children, young children. Oh. And so I work with a client who lost her granddaughter brain cancer. I work with another client who lost their 12 or 13 year old granddaughter to suicide, died by suicide. And that, those are brutal. And what, um, do you, what do they need you for? Gosh, in certain cases, it's just someone to talk to. Really? Yeah. No, it, they just tell you. I mean, because you, when you work with someone for 10 or 15 years, you have these conversations about family. And isn't it also because you're involved in the money, you're actually a lot more personally connected to them than maybe they know? 
I would think so. And, you know, so there's this trifecta, let's call it, of professionals in uh -huh. a client's financial life. You have the estate planner, uh -huh. you have the CPA, and then you have the financial advisor like us. Uh, I would argue that we're much more intimately aware of the client's financial situation than usually the CPA or the attorney. It's uh -huh. just because what we do is so immediate. Because right. the money is a map of everything that's happening. And you see it monthly when you get your statements or yeah, you yeah. see it on the news. You're not thinking about your estate plan or tax I time. about that. You have more intimate knowledge of, say, a family than perhaps their sex therapist in a way, you know, like certain parts of it for sure. Because people don't, and I wanted to bring this up too. I've brought this up with other money people. Why is that taboo to talk about how much money we have and how much money we are making? Probably because you don't want to either A, come across as arrogant because mm -hmm. you've got a lot, mm -hmm. or B, inadequate, not that it matters, uh -huh. but perceived as inadequate because you don't have a lot. One of the skills I like to believe I have is being able to tactfully approach those conversations. Right. Because I think in my world, you have to have those conversations. Right. You, you People have to tell me what their financial fears are, what their wherewithal is and things along those lines. Uh, my wife definitely kicks me under the table when we're sitting around with friends and I'm talking about, you know, maybe I wouldn't say intimate financial details, like what was your uh, adjusted gross income last year, right. but that maybe yeah. dance along that line. Because you're used to talking about it. Exactly. And it's no yes. big deal for you. And you don't have any weird projections around you. Just like, well, this is what this is. And this is what that is. Yeah. I don't, I don't let it define people, but other people let it define themselves. Yeah. So I want to address a couple more points. So talking about children being lost, obviously when a loved one passes, those are the challenging moments but also gratifying in that a being invited to those memorial services oh, wow. i've been to too many recently i had five clients pass in the second half of last year oh, all into cancer i went to a memorial service a couple of months ago and i was not able to say goodbye to the client because of covid we were going to try to connect before he passed he ultimately uh, uh he died by suicide he had terminal cancer so he did the the california death with dignity thing oh really yeah i guess if you get two psychological evaluations oh, wow. and it's terminal they will give you the Really? The package, yes. Yeah, okay. But I went and I felt bad personally that I didn't get to say goodbye to him. So I got up and spoke at his memorial for two minutes. Wow. Just, yeah. So, and I choked up. It was awful. So I, one of my favorite stories, and this was one of the dearest clients I've ever worked with, when he finally got to know me, he said, I'm going to take you to this restaurant. We're going to sit there. And the only reason we're going to this restaurant is they've got good sandwiches and cheap wine. And <laughs> so we would sit there. We would look at reports for two or three minutes. He was comfortable with what we were doing. He'd yeah. pay attention. He was a judge. But at the same time, we would sit and talk about his family, my family. He ultimately got terminal cancer in one blast email he sent to a lot of people. Things aren't looking good. We're doing fine, but don't bother reaching out. I'm not in a spot where I want to talk. In the very next email to me, he said, Jack, I have a referral for you. And he referred me a client. Oh. <laughs> and then we went to Jesus. his house and we took care of some small details before he passed. He sent his kids away. They're all about my age. He said, you guys go away. Uh, Jack and I are going to share a glass of wine and cry. Wow. And so having those connections really are impactful to me. Yeah, that's amazing. Like when I went to my dad's memorial, the most striking thing was meeting all of his fucking patients. Because mm -hmm. he could never talk about them, right? Sure, yeah. And suddenly all these people show up. Mm -hmm. Love my dad. His yeah. woman, woman showed up sobbing, no idea who she was. Yeah. All this love. And I feel like people like you are in a position similar, like nobody really knows just how involved you are mm -hmm. with these families. That must be a lot to hold psychically. It can be. It's gratifying, fortunately. 
I don't let it weigh. It's hard when you lose someone that you really care about sure. for obvious reasons. Yeah. And again, having worked with some of these clients for 20 plus years, it's only going to get harder. I was at a memorial over by uh, near Stonestown. Uh, we were at a memorial out there and the surviving spouse introduced me as one of the most important people in her recent life. Just being able to help her yeah. get through those challenges. And here you are, so they're coming out, coming out of nowhere. Yeah. And people are going, who's this guy? Who's this guy? <laughs> um, <laughs> so there's a story this is sort of connected but not really there's this uh poet uh wallace stevens okay. uh who was it's, he was like ezra pound or t.s Eliot. Mm -hmm. he was an insurance broker his whole life and at his memorial somebody one of his colleagues was heard say wally a poet <laughs> <laughs> yeah you've got you, you never know exactly you never right? know you yeah. never know but how do you see i feel like money and love are kind of inextricably bound up together yes and that like when the will comes out I feel like all the there's all these invisible emotional lines that go between 100 percent, and money is kind of like throwing sand on the invisible man and suddenly you can see him mm -hmm. uh when someone dies it's like all the alliances and all the allegiances and all the grossness and everything in the family comes out it can uh what kind of stuff have you seen when someone dies and like and things blow up fortunately the clients i work with tend to have their financial affairs in order Sometimes not so much, but I see a lot of the hair before someone passes. I will sit with the, in one particular case, the patriarch. What do you want to have happen when you're gone? So you try to address those potential invisible sandmen before we meet our maker. So in one particular case, a family member was being favored for whatever reason, you know, taking care of grandkids and sending them to school at the detriment of three siblings. And I basically asked, well, what happens when you're gone? How are the siblings going to get along knowing that someone got a multiple of whatever else received over their lifetime? And his response was, well, he's trying to memorialize everything and say the one who benefited the most now will get less on the other end. But every family has their own wishes for their money and their legacy. Uh, some people feel as though I'm going to give the most money to the kid that needs it. For obvious reasons, that might make the more successful family members feel unloved. Because yeah. to your point, not that it's right, but people equate money with worth and love. Yeah, well, if you write someone out of the will, it's like you're saying, I don't love you. Yes. Usually there's a reason for something like that. But yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I knew a family, not in my practice, but this woman, she had she moved in with her mother for like the last 15 years of her life. She had one brother and she fully expected that when her mother passed that she would get the majority mm -hmm. of the money. And she wasn't a nasty person or an evil person, but she the, the entitlement was weird to me. Like, I mean, it's awesome that you did that. She's your mom, but mm -hmm. what, why do you think that <laughs> you were yeah. entitled to that? Do you see a lot of that? You see it in our world, yes. You know, people fighting over cars, obviously. I mean, not just the financial assets, but some of the most mundane things, furniture, pictures, silverware. Really? Sometimes those small little things, right. personal effects really drive some of that contentiousness. One of the issues that we see in our world with an aging society is, you know, obviously financial elder abuse and taking advantage of people when they start to lose capacity happens. Some of the people that are most guilty of doing that tend to be family members, not the what do they not do? the housekeeper. Like, like walk to them with like here's a here's an amended thing of the trust and could you just sign this real quick? Or they just start taking money that's not due them. You know, for example, I'm taking care of mom. She would want me to take an extra $5,000. There's no checks and balances. Oh, that's gross. Yeah, it can be. But generally speaking, when someone passes, things seem to go smoothly in your experience? I wouldn't say they ever go smoothly. You try to make it as smooth as possible, but 
you know, it's, we deal with the administration, so it's a lot of times just executing what an attorney or a CPA says is supposed to happen. From an emotional perspective, what I see is, again, A, the loss of a loved one, but B, will I be able to accomplish what we had set out to do, uh, what I thought we'd be able to do when we were alive and living together? So it's that fear of not being able to do what you had expected when you were a couple. I think it should come as no surprise that in our society, at least historically, it's been men who've driven a lot of the financial decision-making and have been the family controller, shall we say, especially in maybe our parents' generation. The wives were oftentimes, I wouldn't say left in the dark, but not as engaged as maybe they should have been. And I think that's a big source of anxiety too. I mean, I was raised by my mom. She didn't know what she was doing and she had to do it all on her own. And oh, really? uh, it was a challenge, yeah. Yeah, Can you? do you wanna speak to that? Uh, I think one of the issues our industry faces is that there's a lot of financial engineering going on, meaning people selling things that oftentimes don't necessarily need to be included in someone's balance sheet. In my mom's case, she had just retired. She sold her condo. She moved to upstate New York with family, got referred to a broker at a wirehouse. And this was in March of 2000. So right before dot-com one collapsed, she took her condo proceeds and whatever small nest egg she had from savings. And this investment person took it all and invested in two investments, the Mundernet Net Fund and John Hancock Small Cap Growth, two very aggressive tech-heavy investments at the very peak of yeah. dot-com one. Yes. Sounds like my, that's my dad did kind of such shit like that. I mean, it's unfortunate. And I'm not suggesting that this gentleman shouldn't have been paid on a commission basis, right. but he at very least had an obligation to do right by his client and the suitability test was certainly not met. So when my mother finally came to me and said, what do I do and try to help her pick up the pieces, we were able to find an attorney and uh, received a you know, modest settlement. Okay. So at least you're able to help. What do you make of people like Madoff and like Elizabeth Holmes and stuff who like have this sort of magnetic attraction where people just like, yes, take my money, please. You know, I cannot even get into those people's mind because you had made a comment that I, I, I hold dear to my heart. And I believe this when I work with clients, when they trust you, that's something that cannot be violated. And it trust is earned, not taken. I cannot get in the mind. I mean, these people are psychopaths, right? I mean, they're prima donnas. They're, they have no scruples when it comes to emotion. You know, basically they're out just looking out for themselves. They are. And you've met people like that. I'm certain of it. Yeah? Sure. Yeah. What are they like? They are great at selling themselves. They walk on water or at least they say they do, and they've got the best ideas in the world. And a lot of times, you know, it's taking advantage of the counterparty saying, how dare you question me? I find myself in situations a lot of times where clients say, whatever you want to say, I trust you. And I think that's a very dangerous proposition, right? Sure. But at the same time, how was that trust developed? Well, I find that when I kind of have a freak out and I email you, you know, in the dead of night, like, oh my God, inflation, <laughs> you'll send me a thing back saying, well, this is my recommendation, but these are all the other factors. And you're pretty kind of roundabout about it. What I like about you is that there's nothing lopsided or braggadocious. It's kind of flat. Like it's like, <laughs> you know, one of the, the reasons, well, the reason that I trust you is because the assessments that you give me are always sort of tedious and boring. <laughs> <laughs> Investing should be tedious and boring. Yeah, you know, <laughs> people offer these high flying, you know, this is and that. So it's like, oh, Jesus Christ. You know? Yeah. Again, it's back to that financial engineering, that salesmanship. Yeah. You know, I was talking with someone earlier today, a, a potential client about insurance. And I'm not saying insurance people are bad or good, but they're bad. A lot of products are sold, not bought. And when you're dealing with 
information or skill gap, it's very easy to capitalize on that. I do my best to approach people as if, you know, do unto others, right? I want to talk to people as I'd want to be spoken to by my doctor. The only way a relationship works for someone like me or for the colleagues I work with is it has to be a partnership. I don't want to operate behind this shroud of mystery, man behind the curtain, the Wizard of Oz just pulling levers and whatnot. Because when things go wrong and inevitably something will go wrong, they have to have confidence in the decision making and the conversations led up to the situation and then the solution. Let's talk about inflation. Kind of. Sure. Like. As far as inflation is concerned, the United States is something like 13th in the world from the worst or something like that. Okay. Like, like is that right? Uh, that I don't know. But like, we're doing okay. Yeah. And everyone thinks it's Biden's fault. What, what's going on? Why is there inflation? What's happening? One of the things I'll talk to clients about, I, we'd all agree that we've come off one of the craziest economic episodes of hopefully our lifetimes with COVID and the shutdown and the reopen. Throw into that you know, obviously, there was a lot of uh, stimulus thrown at the COVID issue from a financial perspective, uh, people getting paychecks, things along those lines. People did not have a place to spend their money because we were on lockdown. Uh, so you saw savings rates go up, add to that the Ukrainian conflict, add to that supply chain issues. So when you have the Ukrainian conflict, you have all these supply chain issues, China shut down, we're shut down, people are saving money. You saw inflation on the good side of things during the pandemic when people bought those wonderful Pelotons. I admit I bought one too. So people were buying a lot of things for their homes, barbecues, backyards, Pelotons, things along those lines. Uh, so you saw the inflation there. That was uh, exasperated by the supply chain issues. Once the economy started to reopen, we saw things start to, I won't say crack, but the focus has shifted. People stopped spending money on Pelotons and that you can see in the stock price, Pelotons basically collapsed and people are now spending on things that we're all aware of, travel, restaurants, things like that. And so that's where we're seeing inflation now. And I think roundabout way of answering your question, why did we see inflation in goods during the pandemic and why are we seeing inflation in service post-pandemic is a mismatch between supply and demand. I mean, it's pretty classic. Because there's there's not enough supply to meet demand? Correct. I mean, you see pilots are retiring, so there's not a capacity issues in airlines. Yeah, list goes on. But what about all the PPP stuff and all the money that the government sure. poured? Does that help? I think now certainly inflationary because, again, we were shut down. People let their savings accounts build. And so now that we're reopened, people are out spending. So the example I use, it's overly simplified, but you weren't able to take a trip for three years. Yeah, now you can. So now that you can, you're going to take two to three trips this year. So how are those cruise ship companies doing? Are their stocks going up? Depends on which one. I think they have their fits and miss. <laughs> I think I saw today Norwegian, Norwegian or someone, a bad number or something, so it collapsed. Oh, yeah. You know, just because a company is doing well from a capacity perspective doesn't mean the stock's going to do well. I mean, Southwest, the stock sort of languished. It's sort of interesting, isn't it? That I think that one of the huge mistakes that lay people make is that they assume that because there's going to be energy here that the stock's going to go up. Yes. You don't, the idea that there's just so many mechanisms that, that, that occur between the actual thing and the perceived value of the thing. 100%. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Just because everyone wants a product, you know, you can buy a great company when the stock is high and you can buy a crappy company when the stock is low right. and make money on the second example and yeah. lose money on the first example. I remember when the pandemic hit, you sent out an email to everybody saying, don't invest in companies that make uh, baby wipes. Or yeah, <laughs> because it's all cyclical. And you know, the, those things ultimately clear themselves. Right. And so, yeah. What does that mean, clear themselves? Oh, just uh, the demand ultimately gets satisfied. 
Peloton's a perfect example. Everyone bought it because they thought everyone's going to want to do exercise in their house. And that's the new normal. The reality was that there was a finite market there and it just, it dried up. Which is different from like the personal computer, which there was yeah. no ceiling. Yeah. Well, even, I mean, during the pandemic, everyone was getting PCs. And so everyone thought that the PC market was the place to be, but post pandemic, everyone had already bought their PCs. Oh, really? And so now they don't need them anymore. So yeah. Okay. So is inflation going to, is it going away? Uh, you know, it seems to be slowing down. The feds raised rates and that. Are they going to keep doing that? It's our view that they might have one or two more. Why? Why? <laughs> because they have to get, or their statement is they want to see inflation in the 2% range. We're running, you know, in trailing 12 months, maybe 4%. Okay. Uh, but it's starting to come down. You're starting to see the month on month numbers uh, uh, looking a little more attractive. I'm going to ask a dumb question about inflation. Inflation just basically comes from like one person says, hey, I want, I've got all these gadgets on my desk. I want that cube. And someone else says to the same guy, I want also want that cube. And so the guy is going to give the cube to the person who's going to offer him an extra 10 cents or an extra dollar. Sure. Is that all inflation is? Inflation is rising prices. Where does the rising price for, say, a loaf of bread begin? Starts at the, the wheat. Okay. So when you have the uh, Ukrainian crisis, right? right? Wheat market is shut down for however big a percentage that market was globally. So that at the fundamental level, it starts with the raw products. Obviously, it'll trickle up to how it gets manufactured. So labor will be a part of the but, inflation. But, but why do the raw products go up in price? Uh, supply and demand. So there's not enough supply. And so people just know, oh, there's not as much supply. I can afford to raise these prices. Or the suppliers will raise the prices. I mean, you'd have to look at the supply demand curve, right? I guess, <laughs> like, I guess I'm just, just curious, like the moment of a price increase, like does it happen in somebody's mind? Is it a thing that happens in a conversation when someone haggles over the price of a, of a bag of wheat? Like where does it, where's the actual ding, you know, where it goes up? You know, when does that? Markets. Right, so uh -huh. you have your uh, you have your commodities markets. So I'm talking about publicly traded right. assets. Uh, have you seen Trading Places? Uh, uh, have, Eddie Murphy actually. and uh, Dan yeah, Aykroyd yeah, yeah. about the, yeah, uh, the, the the orange juice market. We are old, so it's very old, but very classic. You know, it's again markets are where buyers and sellers come to meet. If there's a supply shortage and the amount of buyers remain static, they'll bid the prices up because they have to get the flour into their factories to make the bread mm -hmm. that ultimately they've already agreed to manufacture. If for. the amount of buyers are static. So if, if the number of buyers remains the same, but the amount of product goes down, uh -huh. oh, the, yeah. the price will inevitably rise. What's being hit the hardest right now? Oh gosh, what is it now? Energy's been a little tight of late. I think that softened a bit. Housing remains relatively tight. That's not necessarily a product, but you know, housing prices, travel, Travel's going up. Oh, yeah. Car prices, used uh -huh. car prices have. Seems, seems like everyone I know is traveling. Yeah. They're talking about this amazing restaurant that they're going to go to in sure. such and such a place. Well, and you know, I mean, the challenge there, I mean, being in San Francisco, you see it, you can't find enough workers to wait tables. And that's inflationary. What do you think of the economy in San Francisco as far as like, you know, how uh, oh. <laughs> that's a tough question. Oh, okay. Uh, I live in the East Bay. I think the Bay Area unfortunately has its challenges. Housing is expensive. There's always concern that there's going to be some office issues, but at least recently I read that AI is replacing some of the other industries that are starting to leave. But I mean, you see it, you've got some companies that just don't want to be in San Francisco anymore. You have conferences that are being canceled or delayed. Yeah. I wouldn't want to be Mayor Breed. No, that's a tough, I mean, they're going to convert Westfield Mall to a soccer stadium. Well, that's what was her <laughs> Yeah, I like soccer, so it'd be yeah. great. But at the same time, I mean, we used to go to Nordstrom's as a family 15 years ago at the mall, yeah. and that was the big day out. 
and now yeah. it's not there anymore. This I mean, exists. that's just crazy. Yeah. yeah. So I think San Francisco, don't hold me to this, has been the slowest city to recover post-pandemic big yeah. city. Why do you suppose that is? Headlines? I don't know. Because right now it's sort of the the right is sort of relishing and picking on San Francisco. It's yes. become like the pariah of the, of the United States. Sure seems like it. You know, and you just see these, you know, okay, we're going to go film on the corner of Mission and 8th and say that this is what San Francisco is. Agreed. Which is like the one of the worst places in the world. Yeah. You know, just that, that those few stretches of those few blocks, it's just, they're so terrible. Well, whether it's my industry or headlines in general, what do they say? Liars figure and figures lie. <laughs> right. And so I think while San Francisco seems to have, and again, I don't want to touch a, the third rail when it comes to politically charged issues, but the headlines seem to indicate that San Francisco has a crime problem. Yeah. But when I read the details, it's a property crime issue. Violent crime, as far as I understand, is not as yeah. bad as it was pre-pandemic. But, you know, property crime is very impactful on people. I mean, yeah. well, I, I don't go to Walgreens in the city, but I understand everything's locked up. It's impossible to get a fucking soap. Like, yeah. I go to Walgreens just down the street. Like I got to wait for someone. I can't, I can't buy toothpaste. I agree. No. It's like, what is this? Um, and then cars are getting broken into. I, I think mm -hmm. also cars get broken into so often that people don't even report them. Oh yeah. You always hear the stories about people going to the airport, all the tourists. There's a line for uh, reporting broken windows at the oh, rental agencies. Really? Yeah. See, I mean, again, but wow. this is, you, you see those headlines and whether or not they're accurate, it's yeah. what the media is portraying. Yeah, yeah. Do you think San Francisco will come back? I sure hope so. Yeah, me too. Yeah. I mean, I was not raised here, but this is our home and we lived in San Francisco and it seems to be a much different city than it was 15 years ago. Yeah. Well, I mean, just like going back to a conversation about value, I think there's intrinsic value to San Francisco. Mm -hmm. it's Absolutely. Be it's beautiful. The weather 100%. is awesome. Yeah. It's got a really interesting mix of people. It's got a lot of interesting looking neighborhoods. Oh yeah. History, cool. great food. History, food is good. Yeah. It's a fun place. I'm surprised that the rental market hasn't plummeted because it's all these new units going up and people are, there's a there's a negative population growth. At the moment. Sure. And I'm also surprised the housing market hasn't collapsed because like the same, I mean, why, well, I don't get it. But I can touch on that one a little bit because that's a little more economically focused, but nationally housing prices haven't collapsed because no one can afford to sell their house because they can't get into a new mortgage at 7%. So if you have a 3% mortgage, I don't want to sell, try to upgrade, get to take a bigger debt burden. Oh, so you know when he's selling, so there's no supply, so the prices are being high. Yes, Got exactly. Yeah. So back to that supply demand curve. Well, maybe rental. <laughs> well at any rate, I, I just think that in a couple of years, probably it's going to be pretty cheap to move into the city. My, my prediction is there's going to be a huge boom of early 20-somethings moving into San Francisco. I would hope so. Well, be careful what you wish for. I remember during dot-com one, <laughs> when you'd run around South America and it was a bunch of 20-somethings yeah. that you didn't really necessarily want to associate with sometimes. They all lost their jobs. <laughs> their skinny jeans. <laughs> I remember that. I remember just how everybody was out of work. Everyone knew it was a big joke. Even when we were making, everyone was making lots of money. Just, yeah. My brother once said that if you can't say what you do for money in one sentence, you're done. Yeah. And that was the case back then. Nobody could really say what they did for money. It's a uh, hysteria. Yeah. I remember asking one woman, sure, her company collapsed. And I said, well, what did you guys do? She's like, well, they were called like something or other solutions. Okay. And they would have like entire rooms where were all whiteboards. So they sure. got these huge, you know, thinking things. And like, well, what did you guys actually do for people? Well, we did some IT work for somebody. We set up a this, we set up a that, but she was kind of all over the map. She, she couldn't actually really say what her company freaking did. Yeah. Are you seeing a lot of that right now? Uh, because of what happened in 2000, people became a little more critical on where they were investing their money. So it wasn't based on clicks and eyeballs. And 
how long someone spent on a web page. There are real financial metrics that were involved. What we experienced last year when it came to big tech or high technology or technology, excuse me, there was certainly some froth, but at the same time that got cleaned out when interest rates started to move higher and people were less willing to give new companies free money. Yeah. What do you think of what Elon Musk is doing to Twitter? <laughs> With Twitter? I'm not on Twitter in general. I mean, he's an innovator. He also seems to be somewhat... Uh, stupid. He's he stupid. likes to be divisive. He's a dumb man. <laughs> he's going to come and hunt me down. No, I don't own a Tesla. Tesla is, from a stock perspective, Christian's written about this before. Our, Christian's our strategist. The stock value of Tesla, and don't hold me to this, was at some point higher than maybe the next three big auto companies or some fact, like, like to, yeah. bigger than Toyota, uh, selling 150th the number of cars. They were valuing Tesla's insurance arm at a higher value than a, a traditional auto insurer. And so hype was being sold, right? But sometimes, you know, you grow into that, but the, the argument then is you're priced to perfection and you can't have a, a misstep because if you don't attain those lofty goals and the stock price, price will suffer, perfection, right? you're assigning a value to a stock that it's going to grow into what everyone thinks it will without any sort of misstep along the way. So they have to execute perfectly. Their market opportunity has to be as big as everyone thought. Basically that dream has to be fulfilled. Okay. Not a lot of wiggle room for mistakes or misjudgment. I see. Well, I mean, I just, I feel like Elon's a big fraud, but it's just me. <laughs> <laughs> I can see You can hear my silence is... Uh... Your silence is golden. And I appreciate that. <laughs> I do appreciate it. You know, this is a little unrelated, but my old therapist, Seymour, he was a cantankerous old man. Uh-huh. He would complain about women who would price themselves out of the market. Yeah, make themselves so high maintenance and so difficult to please <laughs> that they couldn't, they couldn't get married. I mean, the consumer drive is strong and you have these aspirational brands like tiffany and i don't wear them but hermes and i don't even know how to pronounce it hermit but those aspirational brands seem to be doing reasonably well because people still want mm. to be associated with that perceived success you know what market fascinates me is the at least the art market we just wrote about that <laughs> Because I'm reading this thing in the New Yorker about this art dealer, mm-hmm. and his he was a secondary market guy. And okay, just was able to sell anything, and he would he would do it by saying like, "Oh, this isn't available," but it always was. Sure, you know, so he would sell the kind of the glimmer of it. Of course, yeah. You know? He got to the point where he would call someone up and say, "Okay, this thing isn't avail- is available, and you have to buy it," and the person would buy it without even looking at it. Oh yeah, because it was from him. Well, it's like NFTs. <laughs> oh my god, <laughs> yeah, NFTs. So again. <laughs> Oh my God. So um, a fool and his money are easily separated oh sometimes. Oh my God, NFTs. So Christian, our most recent blog, went out and it talks about is art an asset class? And mm-hmm. he would argue no. Why is that? Because I'm going to brutalize his words, but because there are issues with forgeries, there are issues with trying to figure out what has staying power. Right. The people that have art now definitely don't turn them over. So like the museums, places like that. I think it's just a good piece to understand maybe why there are some, at the very least, huge inefficiencies in the art market. But isn't it a little bit like gold in the sense that it has value, but no one really knows why? I would agree, yeah. But I think gold at least is more of a commodity. So I can buy an ounce of gold from you, or I can buy an ounce of gold from the the, the coin dealer up the street, and the prices are going to be comparable. There's only one Van Gogh out there. Right. So there's that scarcity. Right, right, right. That's so fascinating. And I'm assuming that uh, with gold is also like gems are kind of in the same category. Sure, yeah. yeah. But back to your art thing, one of the things he talks about is, you know, something as simple as the cost of maintaining the art, mm-hmm. the insurance. 
things along those lines. It doesn't have to be restored. Yeah. And that's an implied drag on your return, shall we say? Right, right. Well, I was going to ask you about NFTs and how stupid they are. <laughs> so, again, I think NFTs have to do simply with the fact that someone created something that they uh, are able to market. Well, like I, I was talking to a friend of mine about it. He's really into NFTs. And I was like, can you explain it to me? He says, well, you own this little, this designates this is yours. Yeah. This little pixel in space that says this is what this art piece is and i said that's not that has no value and he would just we would have these conversations that would go around in circles yes. at the end of every single one of them we'd say ben you just don't understand i'm like you're right I don't <laughs> that's understand. why i will not own one <laughs> no i think again my understanding is it's basically the digital fin- digital fingerprint of the authentic item if you can watch shaquille o'neal dunking on youtube versus owning the nft of him dunking it's crazy yeah. like well, how is that value you know you like a people thing that sold for what was it 130 million dollars yeah. what was it fooling his money and you could easily you can get a copy of that piece of art and put it on your wall for nothing yeah i agree by going click yep you got a nice (laughs) printer and printing it out yeah (laughs) exactly no it's absolutely true Uh and i think uh part of it is just the fact that people like to feel as though they've got that power what's your relationship to money uh let's talk about you jack i am historically cheap are you? <laughs> yeah, so I was raised very cheaply. Okay. Uh, uh, so I was raised by my mom. My parents were divorced when I was young. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were both hard workers. They both did well. My mom was a retired nurse. My father a physician. But we just never really had fu money, mm-hmm. and so I wouldn't say I was ever spoiled financially. So it was just it was it, it was scarce, and so you appreciate it. And I was lucky enough to go to a good school. I went to college on my family dime and whatnot. So it's not like I wanted, but at the same time, I didn't have a car until my senior year. In college things like that so it was not as though money was just being thrown at myself how did you get into this field i graduated with a business degree i started in retail banking and i did not like retail banking because that mean retail you know just working for a large bank on the the teller side managing the teller line and ultimately being the assistant manager of a branch and it's interesting when the markets go haywire and I work with a very large client and they lose a heck of a lot of money over the course of a month or a day even. I mean, you can see six figures in certain cases for a right. multi-million dollar portfolio. They are much more understanding than a person in a bank when you return their check and they get charged 10 bucks. Fascinating. Why do you suppose that is? That I don't know. I think it's just because, you know, in the branch you're dealing with people that are living maybe more so paycheck to paycheck versus someone that is successful because they understand what it took to get there and they're willing to accept the risk involved. And I think there's also a certain amount of projection that happens, like like the bank fucked me over. Yes, the man. The man. Like there's a lot of projection on on institutions and corporations and governments. And and I feel like we look at them like they're our parents in a way, unconsciously. Sure. Fuck you, dad. Fuck you, mom. Why don't you give me the thing? Yeah. Even Uh, though you're the one that screwed up. You returned my check. You wrote a check that there wasn't enough money for. Right. Yeah. So I started in this world in 92 and have been client facing for probably 25 years now. How do you think I'm doing? Financially? Yeah. Well, how do you think you're doing? I think I'm doing great. That's all that matters. Uh, (laughs) And I don't say say that lightly. I don't want to joke about that. But again, he who knows he has enough will always have enough. And what I coach clients or try to encourage clients to do is, you know, come up with a plan, be disciplined about it, save till it hurts. But at the same time, depending on where you are in life, right? You have to be able to stop and smell the roses. But I'm pretty consistent. I also, I don't freak out and make you sell a bunch of stuff and have that dip and it's coming back. Yeah. I'm still a little bit behind, but it's okay. But we had those two conversations, once during inflation and once Mm -hmm. during the banking crisis, a couple of months ago when 
Silicon Valley Bank went under. And mm. those, those, those are the points of anxiety in people's lives, right? Well, and I'm, the, I'm proud of myself because I the last sort of check I wrote you, things have been doing really, really well. <laughs> uh, so I feel, I feel amazing. And I'm so bright and brilliant. Uh, I wish from our perspective that there were a science to success over the short term. It's really absolutely, and this might sound cliche, but having a long-term strategy that you're comfortable with, that you can deal with when times are both good and bad, because most people focus on the bad times when it comes to investing and the freak out of selling when you shouldn't sell, but also it can be equally dangerous. We talked about dot-com one in 2000, you know, that whole fear of missing out. That's Uh, a killer. It can be. My therapist told me that he sold Berkshire Hathaway when it was $125 a share. No. Oops. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, what's done is done. Yeah. And, and here we and are. And to know that if he had hung on to that, he wouldn't have made some other mistake in some other area. You know what yeah. I'm saying? Like, I heard this saying once that to live at 10% above your means is misery and 10% below it is, is happiness. Sure. I would agree. Yeah. It depends on your DNA though. Yeah. It takes a right person to believe that. So what is your financial advice for people? Let's get really direct. What should people do? People should have, again, to sound cliche, find a strategy, meet with us. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, this, is our, this is our website. <laughs> no, but- Jack Scaff is- I, available. Like, <laughs> no, uh, come up with a strategy that makes sense. Don't be afraid of something that you may not understand, but become educated when it comes to financial uh, issues. You know, what was it? Um, Alan Greenspan uh, learned about math and money by doing uh, baseball statistics. Uh, yeah, I, I think unfortunately, and this is just a shame on our current education system that at the high school level, there's not Financial education, financial you, home neck. Yeah, it's terrible. Yeah. How do you see people wasting money the most? Oh, gosh. I can tell you how I waste money. It's all on food it's by mm-hmm. my waistline. Whatever your vice is, there's so many out there. So vices are what do it with people? Yeah, but I mean, vice broadly speaking, you know, I think we work with a fair amount of clients that may or may have a second home. Those tend to be money sucks because they're not terribly productive assets from a financial perspective unless you buy the right house in the right place. Sure. But if you can afford it, I'm not going to second guess it. But like, I, I think in San Francisco, people are addicted to restaurants. Yes. And I never go out to eat. I uh-huh. cook like sometimes three times a day. Good I for just, you. I, I'm not, I'm not, I just like to cook and I yeah. don't like restaurants because I'm an introvert. I just sure. don't like dealing with the crowds and all that bullshit. But I swear to God, I think I must save two to $3,000 a month. I would agree. That is certainly one of our vices. My wife and I do like to eat out. And then it's that and clothes. Clothes. Well, like people uh, spend a lot of money on like shoes yeah. and glasses. And then I guess travel. Travel. Yeah. I always tell clients that I work with, I'm not one to judge what they spend their money on, but I will make a comment if their overall spend is too high. Oh, you will? What will you yeah. say? You're spending too much. This is not sustainable. How do you know what they're spending their money on? Do they just tell you? or like? I work with a client just the other day spending <laughs> five figures a month we send them, uh-huh. and it's on you know just daily living, travel, primarily travel. They have an oh. expensive house. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Like uh, sex addictions? You'd, yeah. They'll spend money on prostitutes sure. and porn sites. Sure. Five, $6,000 a month, sometimes a week. Unfortunately, there's a lot of way to be separated from your money. Drugs. Yeah. Uh, gambling gambling alcoholism oh God, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, you know and also i think a lot of people unfortunately and they do it from a good place but maybe spending too much on their family versus themselves here's a really random question sure why is divorce so much more expensive than marriage i think partly because when you're married you're working towards a common financial goal or you have potentially two incomes to try to get to where 
where you want to be. And again, this is assuming one of the both spouses are making money. It's more efficient to have one household. You know, you have one mortgage, one rent payment. Because divorce, I guess everyone's fighting over scraps and that each fight is like cost money. Exactly. Again, yeah. going back to the attorney thing, right? You know, divorce is another emotional subject. We've got, got two clients that are going through divorce. One's going to the settlement phase and they've not wanted to address it for a long time. It's all going to work out, but these are the kind of things you can't just bury. They don't go away. Uh, the flip side is we work with another couple that's going through a divorce and they're trying to get clarity before it's even close to possible what clarity might mean just because there's so many things that have to happen before we can get a deep understanding and these are relatively new clients so it's going to be just it's it's a it's a learning process yeah to understand what the situation will look like you know i think one of the things you asked what should people be doing and you can talk about the technical aspects about asset allocation and where should you put your money back out your 401k do a roth ira those Anyone that has a certain level of competency in our world should be able to help guide that. Or you can pick up uh, investing for dummies and look at all that stuff. But I think education's a key. I think the most important thing that it maybe is a softer skill is addressing those emotional inflection points when it comes to being a, an investor. Market highs, market lows, separating fact from emotion. What's the game plan? Can you stick to it? Should the game plan be changed? If so, why? And what is it going to look like? You know, just really trying to understand, given all the possible various outcomes out there, what's the most optimal result and what's the most likely way to get you where you want to be, trying to define where you want to be. Do you feel like your listening skills are really good? I would like to believe so. Tell me what you focus on when a client is sitting in front of you and pouring their hearts out saying, I need to sell and blah, 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 blah. What do you do? Do you argue? Do you reflect? Do you, what do you do? Ask questions, try to poke at the subject tactfully, offer words of advice if there are any to offer. But a lot of people in our industry, I've seen it before, have all the answers when the question hasn't been asked. People sometimes just want to share what they're feeling and aren't coming to you at least at that particular moment uh-huh. for a solution. And so it's very important to just try to understand. I've been criticized somewhat jokingly uh, in situations where the client or someone just in a social situation say, you've let me do all the talking, let's start talking about you. And you know, to your point about being an introvert, I used to historically think I'm an introvert. Uh-huh. Maybe I feel as though I'm introvert because I don't like to make it about me. I think where I'm successful is trying to uncover the emotions that who Whoever I'm working with is whoever I'm talking with is trying to discuss. Because as you're talking, you sound a lot like a therapist. I'd say 70% of my job, not to diminish what no, you do no, professionally. Not at all. Not at all. I yeah. think money is just a, you know, my old therapist Seymour said that, you know, he would turn all his accountants into therapists. Yeah. So accountant patients, they would become therapists, basically. Yeah. And they would stay accountants, of course, but all the techniques were the same. Not to pat myself on the back, but I, I do like to believe I have a certain level of money empathy. I've been around it enough and I've seen people that have incredible amounts of wealth that aren't terribly happy. There's studies that show that people, whatever money they, if they win them, get a bunch of money or lose a bunch of money, their happiness will adjust to that economic level. You know, I think money has a certain level of utilitarian value when it comes to happiness. Uh-huh. Once you get beyond the point of satisfying all your basic needs, the value of each incremental dollar is less from a happiness perspective. Yeah. I had a financial planner once tell me, he was in my jiu-jitsu class, he said that once you have food on the table and a roof over your head, it's all diminishing returns. And he is so right. You I know, absolutely agree. I'm not I'm not a real wealthy person, but I can tell you with the amount of savings and the amount of money that I that I am making, uh, which I'm incredibly grateful for, if anyone had told me I would be making that 20 years ago, I would have laughed in their face and I would have said, well, I would just retire with that. And now it's like, no way. 
So I think, you know, I appreciate you saying that because that's how I feel. I mean, when I was, the challenge with money is you can always try to define what you have versus someone else who's going to have vastly more than you. Uh -huh. There's always going to be someone with more. If you told me at 18 that at 55, I would be where I am, I would be doing backflips. Yeah. I, I find it. And it's not as though I've ever had a gigantic win. I was never in an IPO company, right? right. It's discipline. And my dad ingrained it in me to save. Save, I could have done a better save. job, but at the same time, you know, it's just uh, being comfortable in your own skin. I think it's a good place to end. Okay. All right, Sarah. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Benjamin. It was wonderful. And I look forward to doing this again if it still works. All right. Take care. Take care. Thank you for listening. Should you have any questions or would like to be a guest on my show, please contact me at benjaminrusick at gmail.com. Thank you again and catch you next time.